Good morning, and welcome to On Target, a radio ministry of Village Bible Church in Hot Springs Village. We are located near the Coronado Center at 100 Ponderosa Way. Our Sunday morning service starts at 9.15 a.m. We hope you will enjoy and benefit from the sermon you will hear this morning. Now sit back and relax as you listen to a message by Senior Pastor Dr. Jason Lancaster. It's good to see you here this morning and those joining us on Facebook Live. Here is a good description of the church over the last several months. Not this, just this church, but the church on a whole. Before the pandemic hit, we were running the race. We were doing Sunday school, small groups, meeting during the week, live worship services. We were running the race. We're familiar with that, that running. But then we had to add another sport. We started swimming. We went online. We had to figure out how to do Facebook Live and Zoom and call people and figure out how to do church virtually. We started swimming. But now we're introducing a new sport, and that sport is now cycling. Not only are we running and swimming, we're also cycling. And the cycling is this. The church is starting to see an outbreak of addictions, mental illness, depression, People are losing their jobs. Relationships are fracturing. And during this time, there have been a lot of people who've basically stopped following the Lord or they've gotten distracted or they've turned their backs on him or they've got out of fellowship and they're just way out. And what we need specifically during this time in the midst of all the trauma, because there's a lot of trauma going out there, we need the Lord to speak truth. We need the Lord to speak truth to those who are straying. We need the Lord to speak truth to those who've gotten caught up in addictions. We need the Lord to speak truth to those who are focusing on idolatry right now. We need the Lord to speak truth to us today, right now. And it's very similar to what we just read in the book of Malachi. God is speaking truth to his people. And it is that book that we're going to look at right now. Maybe you're not familiar with Malachi. Maybe you had a hard time even finding Malachi. But we're going to look at Malachi. And if you've never studied Malachi, here is your opportunity. Because this fall, I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to go through two books at once. We're going to cover the book of Malachi and the book of 2 Timothy. I am a professional. Don't try this at home. But we're going to try two books at one time, not on the same Sunday. We're going to alternate a bit. But this morning, we're going to start out with the book of Malachi. Now, remember, we just finished the book of Philippians. And you know what Philippians does? It makes people come to the pastor and say, oh, pastor, that was such a good sermon. That really ministered to me. Thank you so much. You're probably not going to say that about the book of Malachi. I don't anticipate any of you in saying great sermons. In fact, I doubt any of the prophets had people tell them, great sermon. All right? So let's look at Malachi chapter 1. I just kind of want to just jump into verse 1 just right away. Malachi 1.1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. The word oracle could also be translated 
burden. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Why would the word of the Lord be considered a burden to Malachi? Think about it. When you have serious concerns about someone and their walk with the Lord, you have a burden with them, for them, right? And you want to talk to them, but you're not quite sure how they're going to respond to you. So you have a burden. You want to tell them some difficult truth, but you don't know how they're going to take it. That's what's going on with Malachi. He has a burden from the Lord for Israel that he must proclaim, but he's not quite sure they're going to receive it. Here is some background on Israel. The Israelites have a history of rebelling against the Lord. And their issues during Malachi's time are quite deep, all right? So they've been back in the land of Israel for a few years after spending about 70 years in Babylon where they were deported because of their rebellion against God. They come back to the land, they're excited, they're passionate, they're zealous to start to rebuild their devastated homeland. And they are spurred on by all these prophetic announcements to get going. They're pumped up, they get going, but their expectations are crushed. Things didn't seem to be prospering as they had hoped. And their initial passion in serving the Lord has turned into apathy. Malachi comes along with his burden from the Lord. And God sends him on a mission to wake up the Israelites, to call them to return to the Lord, and he will return to them. The way that this wake-up call is expressed is through a series of six disputations. These are arguments that Malachi is going to make, the Lord's going to make through Malachi. And in these distinct arguments, this is what happens. The Lord brings up an issue... The people push back and challenge the Lord, and the Lord responds to his people and calls them to repentance. And this morning, in our first disputation, I'm going to call this doubting God's love. Disputation number one, doubting God's love. What's going to happen this morning is you're going to see, number one, God's going to express his love. The people are going to doubt it, and the Lord's going to elaborate on how much he loves them. Now, this is a great place to start, especially when you're trying to bring people to repentance. If you find yourself at a place this morning where you're, you're running from God or you're, you're drifting from God, may you have this realization that God loves you. He is pursuing you. He's trying to bring you back to his love. That's where we're going this morning. Let's jump in, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. <laughs> the Lord has a history of loving the Israelites. He loves them and he continues to love them. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you've trusted Christ to redeem you from your sins, you're following the Lord. The Lord loves you. He cares for you. He has a history of loving you. And his love is not just for an individual. His love is also for his children 
collectively. So for us, we could say the Father loves his church. And during Malachi's time, we could say God loves his people, the Israelites, and he has a history of loving them. But remember, well, we talked about these disputations. God says something, and now the Israelites are going to challenge it. Look at verse 2, right in the middle. But you say, how have you loved us? So the Israelites are doubting God's love. They, they, they look around at their circumstances, and they don't see any specifics of God's love. They're, they're back in the land, but the land has been significantly reduced. The promises of old, of, of God loving his people and blessing the nation, seem distant and impossible. In fact, they are not even in control of their own selves, right? Right now, the, the Persians are ruling them, and before that was the Babylonians ruling them, and then before that, the Syrians were attacking them. And to make matters worse, the Israelites at this point have no army, their crops are failing, the temple has been rebuilt, but it's puny, it's nothing compared to the original, and there is no manifestation of God's presence. And the people are like, God may say he loves us, <laughs> I don't see it. You ever said that before? God may say he loves me. I don't see it. You say you love me, God, but I look at my circumstances, and it's an absolute mess. Are you sure you love me? I, I don't believe it. Now, here's the deal. And I just want to shoot straight with you. The Israelites have created this mess. They have some messed up circumstances because they have created they have rebelled against God, and they're consistently saying it's other people's faults, it's the circumstances' faults, it's God's fault. And yet, we are going to see throughout the next several weeks that it's actually their fault. They have corrupt worship. The men are divorcing their wives for absolutely no reason. The men are marrying pagan women. Uh, sorcery rules throughout the land. They're ignoring the widows and the orphans. And not only that, the people aren't tithing to God. They're not giving him of their first fruits. And they're questioning God constantly. And so the circumstances they have is because of their own sin. And yet they're looking at God and saying, God, it's on you. We don't see how you love us. Are you sure you love us? And you know, unfortunately, we do the exact same thing. We start ticking things off. And you say, God, are you sure you love us? Because look at all the hard things I'm facing in my life. And I know not all that's your fault or responsibility, but, but some of it may be. And those places where there is sin, there's no need for you to be pointing elsewhere. You should be pointing at your heart. And, and that's all the bad news. But, but the good news is that God still loves you. You ever said that to someone who's really deep in a pit of their own sin? You can say, God still loves you. And right here, God is basically saying, you know, I have loved you, I have a history of loving you, and I'm going to love you even in your waywardness. Can you imagine God coming up to you and saying, look, I love you. I have a history of loving you, and I see you now, you're drifting from me, but I'm going to keep on loving you, and I'm going to bring you back. Now, God's going to give them more and more evidence of his grace. Now, I hope that you're ready to really study the word. You know, people would say, I'm ready to study the word. I hope you're really ready. Because we're going to do some meat studying right now. This is going to be deep stuff for your soul right here, all right? God's going to explain how he has loved them. Listen to the logic of God, verse 2. Right in the middle, God says, 
Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. The Lord has taken his people back to the famous birth of the twins, to Isaac and Rebekah, and their twins were Esau and Jacob. Now, God's purpose in bringing these two up is to display his grace in comparing and contrasting his dealing with each. Once again, verse 2. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, all right? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. So the love-hate language here doesn't have to do with hate in an absolute sense. It has to do with choosing. It's a choosing of Jacob and not choosing of Esau. Jacob and his descendants have been chosen to carry this blessing to the nations, which would ultimately come through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And the question I want you to ask, if you want to ask a question, if you want to write it down, if you want to think through this biblically, is this. Why did God choose Jacob and his descendants as heirs of the promised Messiah and not Esau? Why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? You might say, well, you know what? It's because Jacob, he was just better. Oh, really? Do you want to go back and read the story of Jacob? He was an absolute mess. You say, well, maybe, maybe Jacob was the firstborn. Oh, nope, he wasn't. He wasn't even the firstborn. That was Esau. So why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? And here's the answer. Here's the answer. It's because he wanted to. It was his sovereign choice. It's based upon nothing but his grace. So how has God shown love to his people, Israel? Here's the answer. He chose them. And you think, whoa, that must be an Old Testament idea. Well, I'm just the preacher. I'm going to introduce you to something that's also in the New Testament. In fact, the Apostle Paul quotes this verse right here to demonstrate God's sovereign choice by grace of salvation of individuals. I'm just preaching it, all right? Let me put up for you Romans 9, 11 through 13. He's quoting this passage here. Romans 9, 11 through 13. Starting in verse 11. Go back one. Though they were not yet born and had, had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. How has God loved his people, the church? He chose us. You see, when we start to doubt God's love for us, we need to come back to his sovereign choice and love. God chose us for salvation. Did God look down and go, wow, you know what? That person's so special and they're, they're going to they're gonna be so good, I'm going to pick them. Or looks down and says, you know what? They're going to have such amazing faith and they're going to do radical things for me. I'm going to pick them. No, no, no. When you read the Bible, God's choice is solely based upon his grace in spite of us. He knew we were sinners and yet he pursues us, and he loves us. And what I really hope, my brothers and sisters, is that you do not ever cease to be amazed that if you're a believer in Jesus, you've been rescued by the sovereign grace of God. 
It's as if you were on this ship out in the middle of the ocean, it's dark, it's raining, the ship's going down, and somehow you get rescued. Or you're in a burning building, and there is no way out, and you get rescued. Or you're, you're the man in the Bible who is healed by Jesus, who is blind, right? And what does he say? Look, I don't know what's going on, but all I know is I was blind, but now I see. That is grace. And it's that sovereign choice of grace and his love for us that should draw us to him and back to him. Now, though God brings up the individual election of Jacob and not Esau, the focus is now on their descendants. And this is going to go even deeper into God's word. So try to track with what he's saying. His point is amazing. Verse 3. Look what verse 3 says. I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. He's talking about Esau and his descendants. Remember, the Israelites came from Jacob and the Edomites came from Esau. This is a verse speaking about God's destruction on the Edomites who were Israel's most famous enemy. These two nations were enemies together often throughout history. And you would think since they came from the same parents and the descendants, they would bond an alliance, that you would think brothers would form an alliance and their descendants, but no. In fact, the Edomites are the most hated enemy of the Israelites that when the prophets speak about God's enemies, sometimes they're talking about the actual Edomites and sometimes they'll just say Edom to refer to any old enemy. That's how evil the Edomites were to the Israelites and they did not like each other and God's enemies are often referred to as the Edomites. So the question you need to ask yourself if you're writing down questions to ask and ponder how does the complete and utter destruction and judgment of God upon the Edomites show God's love to the Israelites? You understand the question? God is saying, I love you so much, I've completely wiped out and destroyed the Edomites. And you're like, well, how does that mean that you love me, God? I mean, if you're Israel, are you going to wonder that? And here's the answer. The reason why God is displaying and trying to get them to see how much he loves them by the complete and utter destruction of the Edomites is because of this. It's because the Israelites were just as deserving. They were just as deserving, but God spared them by grace. I hope you can stick with me here. There was a prophecy 200 years earlier that spoke about a similar judgment on Israel. And, Mal and Malachi makes an allusion here. So we just read this verse in um, Malachi about jackals and destruction. But did you know that there was a similar prophecy made about Israel in Jeremiah 9.11 that almost mimics the same word here? Jeremiah 9.11 says, I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruin a lair of jackals, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. <laughs> it's almost the same language. So God disciplined his people for their waywardness, 
And because of their sin, they were sent into exile as their country became a heap of ruin and occupied by these scavengers called jackals. So if God loves his people, then why does he afflict them? If God loves you, why does he afflict you? Well, because that's, that's part of God's discipline to you. And that was part of God's discipline to the Israelites. But get this. God did not discipline Edom, Esau's descendants. He didn't discipline them. He brought upon them punishment and judgment. And in fact, he was going to wipe out the nation of Edom. And that was probably already happening during the time of Malachi as Nabataean Arabs came in and drove out the Edomites. And these Nabataeans were these semi-nomadic, so they left their herds, uh, lay waste to the land. But the Edomites, as they're starting to be destroyed, they hope for one day to have a rebound. Look at verse 4. They're hoping to rebound. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Edom understood their demise, but hoped that one day we're going to come back and we're going to rebuild this ruined country. And the Lord continues, continues in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men, and men will call them the wicked territory and the people to whom the Lord is indignant forever. In their wickedness, they were judged, and the Lord's anger burned deeply against this nation as they were wiped out. You need to understand that Edom's destruction as a nation was permanent and irreversible. Verse 5, finish with the last verse. Your eyes will see this, and you will say, The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. It may take a few generations for the demise of the nation of Edom, but the Israelites will eventually witness it with their own eyes, and it will result in them praising him for his sovereign powers embrace that the Lord is not like other deities that's confined, confined to a nation, but he can branch out and God can raise up one nation and put one down, bring up one and put one down. And here is the whole point of telling you this. The Israelites were just as deserving, but God spared them. The Israelites were just as wicked and deserving of destruction, but God spared them. Why weren't the Israelites destroyed permanently and irreversibly? Why were the Israelites allowed to come back to their land and rebuild? Here's the answer. It's God's grace. It's God's grace. It wasn't because of the worthiness of the Israelites or because of the Lord in his grace. If we're going to go forward in the future uh, soon in, in Malachi chapter 3, but I'll just put it up for you. Malachi 3, 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Because God does not change in his love for his people, they are not destroyed. It does not mean that every single Israelite was saved. It does not mean that certain generations of the Israelites were completely destroyed and separated from him forever. But it does mean that God continues to maintain a people during this time called the Israelites. And God was using his covenant love with them. And eventually his plan was to bless the nation through them by the coming of the Messiah.
Is it because Israel was worthy? No. It was an act of grace that God allowed Israel to remain, though they were worthy of destruction. And my brothers and sisters, this should give you hope. I mean, because you may be here this morning, you may be investigating Christianity, and you hear about all this destruction stuff, you're not so sure. Those of you who are watching on Facebook Live, you may, you may have actually made a mess of your life like Israel. You're not a nation, but you've done a pretty good job by leaving a trail of destruction in your past. You have hurt others. Maybe you've hurt yourself, and you have offended God. And if I can just shoot straight with you, you are worthy of destruction and not salvation. But that's all of us. None of us are worthy of salvation. We don't get to a point where we say, okay, God, am I worthy enough now? Am I worthy enough now? No, 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 no. God saves us by grace. And if you made an ultimate destruction of your life, here's good news. Jesus Christ came to give you hope. He lived the perfect life that you can't live. He died on the cross and all the stuff you've made a mess of, he's taken the punishment for that in your place. And he was buried and he rose again. And here's the offer of grace. You don't have to clean yourself up. Come on. Come on. Anyone here right now, anyone listening right now, wherever you're at, come on. You can put your faith in Jesus Christ right now. And you say, well, I've made a mess. Good. You're in good company. This is the place for you. You can be forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ right now. But there's some believers here too. And maybe you've strayed and you've made a mess of your life. And I just want to tell you right now, God loves you. He's pursuing you. He's coming after you. He's saying, come on. Come back to me. I love you. I see the mess you made. I forgive you. I give you grace. I love you. And there's the enemy talking to you that God doesn't love you, that God won't forgive you. This past week, I do family worship with my family, and one of the things we were talking about was fog. This morning, when I drove in, I've never seen such thick fog. In some portion, I was driving in the village. So much fog. And as we were doing family worship, we said, you know, what can make that fog go away? And we said, well, hopefully the sun, when it comes out, it can just drive all that stuff away. And then we were making the spiritual connection. We said, you know, Satan can tell you lies. It's like fog. that can clutter you. That you can't see. And so I asked my kids, I said, can you tell me the fog of Satan lies? What are some of the lies that Satan tells us? And my youngest one, nine years old, drives me the nuts most, (laughs) sitting right next to me just to keep him under control, He said, one of the lies that we can believe is that God does not love us. Not just for nine-year-olds, also for 90-year-olds. You can still believe that God doesn't love me. And you know what can drive that fog away? The Son, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, So no matter what lies you may have bought into, 
no matter what lies you may be leading right now, you need to know this. God loves you. He's pursuing you. And it's time to return to him. It's time to come home. It's time to come back. And that can start right now. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would enable the people in here and those watching online to actually believe your words, return to me and I will return to you. If you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. Lord, let people know that you love them, that you have a history of loving them even as they're on the run. Let them know how much you're willing to forgive Let them know how much you spared them and you're sparing them now by grace. And may the realization of your love cause them to repent. Let them know they don't have to fix up themselves or to fix their situation, but to return to him right now. We can work on the mess later. We can work on the mess together. But may they believe the message of grace that you love them no matter how much they've been distracted, apathetic, distant from you, regularly unchoosing you, entangled in sin, let them know you love them, you're pursuing them. May they not believe the, uh, the lies of the enemy. May they return to you and you will return to them. We hope you enjoyed this message. It was preached recently at Village Bible Church. You can hear this message or let others know about it by visiting our website at vbchsv.org or call us at 922-0404. Meanwhile, have a blessed day as you walk along the way, guided by God's Word.